dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird pick a young deer off the road and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue of storing rocks in our vicinity. Good size rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and look back, and that's when I thought I saw one. And uh, so, you know, we got this on our therm and, and uh, 
and uh, we wanted to recreate, you know, just kind of get a better idea of what we were looking at. And uh, we got some interesting results. We got to go back again and do some more things. But uh, you know, of course, I do I, I do place audio and stuff out there, and I did some hiking around. But nothing real interesting. Coyotes were absolutely nuts all night. Um, but nothing uh, nothing real interesting uh, for me uh, this weekend. But uh, you know, we've you know that's half the reason I can't make it to Ohio. I got so many trips planned and and excursions and and whatnot that uh, I think my time. I need to focus on being out in in the field, uh, and that's where I'm being called to, and that's where I felt I need to be. So that's that's uh, um, you know, and, and we're gonna be speaking at upcoming conferences here. So I just got a lot, you know, we got things to do with the Olympic project, upcoming uh, uh, excursions and stuff. So uh, yeah. So one of speaking of the Olympic project, um, Derek just posted recently that uh, a public expedition. This year, um, coming up, you can go check that out uh, on their either the Olympic Project Facebook page or uh, the website, which is www.olympicproject.com. Um, that's uh, was my first exposure really to the the uh, Olympic Project. Was I, w- I went to one of the public expeditions. Uh, in fact, several members. Uh, I know that you, Shane, were already involved in the Olympic Project, but several members. Uh, about now, I guess it's going on two years ago. Of, of our uh, Tilma group went mm-hmm. uh, to one of these public expeditions, and uh, great connections, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I really appreciate what the Olympic Project does, but it's always a good time, and it's great networking with with uh, other like-minded individuals that that really um, apply um, are focused on on collecting physical evidence and and. Uh, um, Really good time. So, and I think there's only yeah. like 20 spots that are available. Um, I don't know how many of those are still available, but right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, um, also, definitely a good time out. And uh, you know, the one project definitely about uh, getting patterns of predictability and stuff like that. You know, collecting uh, raw data and, and and being in the field. And uh, we got a lot of different people involved and from all sorts. You know, various backgrounds. So I highly recommend going. You know, uh, <clears throat> we love doing these things, uh, and hope that you know I, I've never had any bad feedback. Everybody that's ever attended has wanted to come back again. So, and uh, our recent guest um, on Monster X, Thomas Steenberg, is going to be there, and uh, is doing a presentation, if I understand correctly. That is correct. Yeah, yeah, excited about that. Yeah, it should be fun. So, um, I actually had the pleasure of meeting Thomas at. Beachfoot a couple of years ago, so great guy. Uh, been in the field a, a long time, doing a lot of research. So active re- field researcher. Um, also coming up is the first ever International Bigfoot Conference, which is scheduled for September 2nd through the 4th in Kennewick, Washington. And as Shane uh, said earlier, uh, he and I are scheduled for our first uh, Monster X uh, presentation. Uh, and so we're excited and uh, hope you will come and join us. Um, as you folks know, I am also the founder of the Sasquatch Coffee Company. Um, got a special deal for uh, Monster X listeners. If you visit Sasquatch Coffee at www.squatchcoffee.com and enter the code MONSTERX, one word, all lowercase, 
and you will get 25% off your next order of $30 or more. And that offer is good through March 10th. So click the click the link and uh, get yourself some delicious coffee. Um, our guests today uh, are a couple of gentlemen that are involved with uh, a cool uh, film project, The Small Town Monsters, which uh, is an independent film series that explores the lost and bizarre history around the United States. It is the brainchild of our guest, Seth Breedlove, and Seth also directed their uh, first um, feature film, Minerva Monster. Uh, and also with joining Seth tonight is Brandon Dalo, a composer who wrote the original score for the Minerva Monster. Um, I know that they've got uh, some other um, uh, films coming out shortly. The White Hall Monster, I believe, is one of them. Uh, I, I know they're uh, raising funds for Boggy Creek. So I'm excited to uh, talk to these guys and uh, and pick their brains. So you got anything else, Shane, before we get started? No, let's let's swing into it, get these guys on the show, and, and uh, I'm really excited uh, to talk to talk with uh, with Seth and the gang. Okay. Good evening. Welcome to Monster X. Hey, thanks for having us. Hello. So, are are both of you guys there? Yep, I'm here too. Yep, we're both here. Okay. <laughs> so, um, welcome to Monster X. And uh, for those folks that don't know um, about Small Town Monsters, can you give us a little bit of uh, you know input and tell folks about what you're all about? Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, Small Town Monsters is a uh, film series, independent film series, about uh, kind of cryptid cases uh, from around the country, and they focus on stories that, you know, have either been lost or forgotten, or maybe people don't quite understand the reality behind the situation. So um, we we kind of uh, kind of catalog the case, and then we also. Uh, uh, document kind of how the case impacted the local community and the people that live there, and we do it in a very uh, straightforward, no nonsense, but uh, hopefully entertaining and fun kind of way where we we let the witnesses speak for themselves and we kind of eschew the usual uh, craziness you see in reality TV. That's the quick version. <laughs> <laughs> so what? Is this Seth I'm talking to? Yeah, that's me. Okay, okay. So, uh, sorry, I, I uh, haven't talked to you. Actually, spoken to you in person before. Um, but I, I have watched. Uh, uh, you were kind enough to share a preview version of of uh, the Whitehall uh, monster, and uh, I did watch it, and uh, I was impressed. I mean, it's it. You guys do a really good job of of. Uh, you know, it's a documentary basically, and you interview the witnesses and and uh, uh, all the. Con- it's it's always cool for me. You know, anecdotal stories are really cool, but it's all about the context of uh, the entire story, which is uh, what you guys are doing with have done with the Minerva monster first, and and with your upcoming uh, Whitehall monster. And what the next is Boggy Creek, the next one on the the list. Yeah, the next one is uh, Boggy Creek Monster, and Whitehall is the current project, and that's coming out on April 
uh, first. And and so so the process of of producing these, I mean, these are really professionally done. Um, one of the uh, Brandon does wrote an original score for uh, Minerva Monster, and uh, in the Whitehall, I'm assuming that Brandon also did the the score for that. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, it really sets the tone um, for for the show, and uh, I yeah. Just, uh, yeah, we, we 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 uh, on on Minerva. He had kind of a less of a of a uh, involved role, and I think he came in around December when we were when we were filming Minerva, and, and that movie obviously didn't finish up until like May of that year. But his primary role on Minerva was as a composer, and um, with Whitehall with with Beast of Whitehall, he has a much more prominent role, and um, I think he. He he was a little more personally involved because of his personal involvement in the production in general. I think it influenced the score too overall, which he can talk about. But I I feel like on Beast of Whitehall he stepped up um, even over what he did with Minerva, which I really loved. But I I really think one of my favorite parts about Beast of Whitehall as a finished film is the score. Thanks. Man. So Brandon, do you want to talk about the process that you? Used for for writing a score for the for a Bigfoot movie. Sure, um, Minerva and Whitehall were definitely different projects. Um, Minerva, I was mostly scoring um, without much film footage, um, and so at, at that point we were just I was writing kind of songs in the vein of what I thought uh, the movie might need. Um, stuff might give me like a, sp- a specific story or scene that we needed music for. And then I would just kind of write music, and then the editor on that movie would sort of take those songs and then edit the, the movie around the songs. So it was a, it was a much different process. But this, um, and in Minerva, I was doing a lot of experimentation too. So you'll hear like if you listen to the score from Minerva, you'll hear sounds that that are kind of associated with the creature. Um, there's like rock. You'll you actually hear like rock throws on this on a roof type sounds or breathing, and that kind of stuff howls and things. And, and kind of involved with the music, but um, I took a totally different approach with with Beast of Whitehall. It's it's um, I don't know. It's it's much more uh, kind of synth based, things like that, but and piano, um, but definitely less of the experimentation, but more so just more involved with like the feelings of of everybody involved in the case. Fantastic, uh, Seth and Brandon Chain here. I'm glad you guys. Uh, uh, took time to join us, um, but I got to ask you, what got you into this? You know, Seth, you know, you, uh, particularly you, what got you into this? What drives you um, to to do what you do and and, and seek out these um, these stories and and really uh, do a fantastic job on on um, exploring them and, and sharing them with the public. Uh, yeah, totally. And thanks, Shane. By the way, I, I I've told you this before. I'm a big fan, so um, it's always cool getting to talk to you. But um, yeah, with with me, I got into Bigfoot like back in the early uh, 2000s, and it was there's you know it was your typical thing. A guy that I went to church with gave me a DVD with like Monster Quest on it. I watched it, and that kind of got me into it. But um, I think what drives me towards the subject in general is just like this the hope that there is this undiscovered creature out there like that that idea of bigfoot is what has always thrilled me about 
you know, going out and hiking and looking around for Bigfoot and doing that kind of stuff. I don't do like, I'm not as serious about it as guys like you, you know, with the Olympic project and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm really impressed by that, but I have not found the time to do it, but someday I want to go on like some sort of expedition. But, um, that's kind of my like the wide-eyed optimism that that we haven't discovered everything there is to discover. But when it comes to small town monsters, I this falls more in line with what I did when I was writing for the newspaper and I've always been a writer since I was a kid. That's that's been my area of expertise. I just loved writing. I was when I was like 8 years old, I put out a family magazine and give it to people and stuff. So, I've always been a storyteller and what kind of drives my love of stories is people. Um so when I'm approaching these kind of small town monsters tales, I'm not necessarily looking for, you know, the craziest monster story. I'm not looking for like Bigfoot's ripping the heads off of people and, you know, throwing them at cars or, you know, riding unicorns or anything like that. I'm more like looking towards who's at the center, who who are the people at the center of the story and what is their, you know, kind of involvement with it and how did it affect them. Um, so that's why we've done the stories we have with, with Minerva, especially because I grew up near Minerva and I was aware of that story from the very beginning. And it was the first Bigfoot story I ever investigated for myself where I tracked down witnesses and spoke to them. And then with um, with Whitehall, it's this the, the, the law enforcement aspect of it and then the Gosselin family and the, you know, the fact that I was worried that the story might fade away with time because of the fact that some of the witnesses were fading away with time. You, you kind of you know, grow attached to the story and you want to see it live on. So I think that's what drives me toward it. Yeah. Do you believe, uh, do you believe there, there's historical value to these uh, stories and these happenings? Uh, do you, I mean, uh, is that part of the reason you feel compelled to do this, this work and, and get, you know, make these documentaries? I mean, or is it just, yeah. you know, not really that historically about no, no, no. I've I've always felt like the stories are historically valuable and I'm not I'm not a stone cold 100% Bigfoot believer, but mm-hmm. regard regardless, I believe in the historical value of the stories, especially because I grew up in a small town and I know how local happenings affect the town um at large, you know, and and seeing things like the Minerva monster story and and the Whitehall story actually have an impact on the local culture. Um, you know, in Whitehall, it's the fact that they have this statue in the middle of the park of a, of a Bigfoot, and people around town, you know, still refer to the A-Bear incident. Um, and for those pieces of history to be lost would be a tragedy, I think, in, in my opinion. And, and I think it's that way regardless of it, if it's a cryptid story or, you know, a, a serial killing or just some local guy who ran a lemonade stand on the corner, like whatever it is. Uh, I believe in the preservation of history, and obviously this has a, a great appeal and a wider appeal for for people at large because it does involve this kind of you know folklore and like a big monster story and all that kind of stuff. But um, you know, for for something when you hear about the passing of someone like Paul Gosselin, who was so tied into the town of Whitehall's history, whether or not people in Whitehall acknowledge the reality behind what he, you know he claimed to see, uh, for that story to be lost would be um, would, it, it would literally be a tragedy to me because that, that's a, a vital part of what makes Whitehall what it is, the town it is. And, um, you know, when it comes to small towns, it's, it, there, there aren't 
going to be thousands of people chronicling the goings-on in that town. So it does kind of fall to either your local historians and your historical societies or, you know, people like me who just are interested in, in local legends and local stories and, and things like that. So, no, I, I totally believe it's – and, you know, I grew up in a family that owned a historical bookstore. So I grew up traveling to book shows and, and listening to my parents speak on history and that kind of thing. So I'm sure this is impacted by that somewhat. Um, but, yeah, it's, there's definitely I, – I love local history and, and history in general, and this plays into that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It, uh, and and I, I got to thank you so much because uh, these stories and these pe- you know people do pass away and these stories do get buried and forgotten. And you, you're really doing a great job on on bringing them not just back to life, but uh, getting some new stuff out of it, breathing some new life into these, and and getting them known. Regardless, if a lot of factual stuff to the cryptid part of it or not, uh, something happened and it had an impact at the time on the people in the communities, um, and, and that alone, uh, just viewing that sort of stuff and looking into the information there is, is fascinating to me. So well done. Uh, yeah, and and like with Minerva, with the Minerva case, that was a story that, I mean, when we got to Minerva and started filming and talking to locals, the thing that shocked us was people there really had forgot about this case. The The Minerva monster case, despite being extremely popular at the time back in the 70s, had been forgotten by locals entirely. Yeah. See, that's crazy to me. I mean, it's uh, but it's that's human nature. You know, uh, as time passes, we forget things, and, and uh, um, it's kind of sad. You know, it really is sad, mm-hmm. but uh, I enjoy when I see, uh, like what you're doing, um, bringing it back and, and uh, reminding people and, and pulling some details out of it it's it's just it's so freaking fascinating uh and i'm just i'm a big fan so you know i say awesome stuff and i'm looking forward to everything you guys do down the road um so fantastic you know uh yeah absolutely Uh, could you describe uh whitehall then and now a little bit uh you know you know what was the community like then compared to now and and maybe we can get into a little bit more of, of the beast of whitehall yeah, yeah. Um, well, and Brandon can talk about this too because he was there with me both times or the Perfect. second time. But um, what it what it looked like to me is that the town is actually the only major change I would say between the '70s and now, um, in terms of just the the way it's set up and the way financially it seems to have fallen. Is that the town is actually on a decline right now? And I don't know if that's you know due to coal mining or whatever. At one time, it was a pretty big mining town, and it's it's also, you know, the birthplace of the U.S. Navy, and it's got a lot of history. I mean, it literally sits on the shores of Lake Champlain, so it's a major, or at one time, it was a major kind of upstate New York uh, village, and it's right down the street from uh, uh, Lake, what is it, Lake George or Lake St. George or whatever it is, which is a major uh, kind of resort town. Um, but, but, you know, in terms of the actual, you know, financial side of things, that seems to be the major difference. Now, in terms of, like, Bigfoot, um, the way they viewed it back then seems to be similar to the way they view it now. Maybe they're they're definitely a little more accepting of it on a larger scale, like a local city government kind of scale. They're embracing their monster, but um, on an individual level, I still think there's a lot of scoffing 
at the subject of Bigfoot in upstate New York. And I'd be fascinated, you know, if you have listeners from that area, if someone wanted to call and correct me, I'd love to hear it. But, you know, from, from our experience, this is not a subject that people out there want to discuss. And Brandon can talk a little bit about that, too. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, just like Seth said, it, you know, it's, it's a really gorgeous area. And you can tell, I mean, it's, the town's still, especially down by the canal and the, and the local park there, and um, it, you can tell it... it it's still gorgeous now, but you could tell it, it at one point had been uh, even more so. And like Seth said, it seems like it's it's in a decline at the moment. But, um, but yeah, I mean, exactly. It's, it's especially yeah. with the Bigfoot stuff. I don't know. I'm assuming that um, it's a, it's a little bit more accepted. Like you said, they passed legislation to protect these creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely I would assume more accepted there now than it was back then. But um, we still ran into a lot of people who uh, would want to tell us their encounters, but then didn't want to come on camera about it because of the ridicule factor. Wow. Yeah. You know, and they, they still do get a lot of uh, big reports out of that area, um, all around upstate New York. Uh, the the from what I I spoke to Bill Brand last night on the phone, who's in the film, and he's been uh, researching this for 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 decades uh literally he's one of the original kind of bigfoot guys and i don't know that people know his name very well but he's you know he's he's kind of like in that don keating camp he's been around forever he's put in the time he's put in the money um out of his own pocket to research it and yeah. he told the number he gave me last night was like 240 uh sighting reports from the adirondack area um you know and he said he t- he just watched the movie yesterday and he said he loved it but he said there's there's so much to the story that people will probably never get to know just because of how vast the history of it is there really is a long like i think the way paul bartholomew put it in the film is there's a rich history there and that's kind of the perfect way to put it there's a, there's a long history of bigfoot sightings well absolutely huge amount of history and like you said there was people wanting to tell you their stories, but didn't want to come on film. So, how many other stories are never going to be told or shared? Uh, tons. <laughs> yeah, and and when I was researching this, and I haven't got to tell this story on anything. I've never mentioned this for some reason, but um, in the film, there's I don't know if you got to watch it, Shane, but there's there's a part where the narration mentions skunk men, mm-hmm. um, yep. and I I had never heard that term before, skunk man. And um, the way I found that was the most random occurrence. I was trying to track down a phone number for a writer who wrote for the New York Times who had moved up to upstate New York. And supposedly at one time he had researched Bigfoot in upstate New York for a story he was doing and became a believer um, because of the research he was doing. So I was actually trying, and I can't even remember how I came up with that guy's name, but I was basically just looking for that guy's phone number. And I called a phone number and wound up talking to some mountain man who uh, lived back in the woods somewhere behind Whitehall who told me that as a kid um, there, that there, was these, there were these legends around town about skunk men. And I, he gave me a phone number to call, another phone number to call of like some mountain man who'd also lived up there forever. And I called that guy, and that guy kind of verified this skunk man story. But basically, back in the late 1800s and up into the early, um, uh, as far as like the early 1950s and 60s, people up there were still like riding on horseback around the mountains. And it was common knowledge that you wanted to have your horse in. 
by dark so the skunk man wouldn't scare it. Because I guess the, the skunk men came out and spooked the horses and I mean it was like it was it was pretty cool because it was such an unexpected little piece of like folklore, you know, like mountain folklore. Um but you have to wonder what the reality is. Is there you know, is that a Bigfoot story? Is it just local folklore? But to me it sounded when he described it, he described, you know, the skunk man was supposedly an upright walking, smelly, uh uh-huh. man man like creature. That is fascinating. I, I've never heard that before. Uh, you know, that's uh, well, learned something today. Thank you. <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, uh, yeah. Uh, now, can you do? You know, let's let's get into the Whitehall incident. Um, uh, for you know, I, it's pr- it's pretty well known incident, but I don't know if people really. Uh, I mean, many of our many of our listeners have never heard of the Whitehall incident, but uh, it's pretty well known. But a lot of uh, the background on it's not well known. You know, people get tidbits and and that's all they get. Can you talk about the? Uh, uh, first of all, can you talk about the area that it occurred in uh, a little bit, and then get into the actual story? Yeah, and if I forget something, just hop in and correct me. But um, you're right. Like this is a well known case, and I was I thought I was familiar with it. You know, I had always heard about these kids in a truck seeing a creature. And then there was law enforcement, and that's all I kind of knew about it. And and really, if you watch things like Monster Quest, which is a great show, and I really enjoy that episode with the Whitehall uh, creature because they got Dan Gordon on camera, who's passed away, and they've got uh, Paul Bartholomew or Paul well, Paul is in there, and Paul Gosselin's in there. And, but um, the the actual story of the cre- of the case is that basically these these two kids were driving down a road on the outskirts of Whitehall, New York, late at night, and they were going camping, right? Camping. Yeah, they were going camping. Um, And they see a creature in a field um, out in the middle of nowhere. They go down to the end of the street, and they turn around and come back. The one guy gets a gun out. They point it at the creature. Creature screams at that point? Yep. Creature screams. The two kids turn around and they bolt back into Whitehall and pick up their friend, um, Bart Kinney. And the three boys come back out to Bear Road and they have another encounter with the creature. So at this point, they turn, they turn around again and go back to Whitehall. And now they get uh, local Whitehall PD because one of the boys' father was the uh, Whitehall police chief at the time. Uh, his name was Wilfred Gosselin, and the boy's name was Paul Gosselin. So all of them come out to Bear, and this is the three boys and then eight members of law enforcement, and they all basically have an encounter with the creature in the field this night. So you've got about 11 people in this field seeing the, you know, the Whitehall beast. And they, um, they, you know, they go back into town. The creature basically, the, I mean, the entire thing incident is kind of chronicled in the movie, but basically, they see this creature in the field, and the creature walks away, and, and you know they go back into town, and the, the story hits the local newspaper, and the the local PD becomes slightly obsessed with it. The next night, Brian Gosselin, uh, Paul's brother, comes back out to the scene, and he's a Whitehall police chief or a police officer as well, and he has his own encounter with the creature, which is just an amazing encounter story. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to make this movie is hearing Brian's story is unbelievably creepy, especially when you're standing in the spot where it happened and having him tell it to you. But um, um, that's kind of what kicked off what became known as the A-Bear incident, which was this week-long series of events. Um, 
there there are a ton of stories uh, from Bear Road during that week that unfortunately we, we might never know. Um, there, you know, I'm aware of who has these stories. I'm aware of some of them, but there's a lot of it that's that's just kind of under wraps. Um, you know, because a lot of times Bigfooters don't like to share, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. So for now, um, what is in the movie is kind of the extent of what we know, but there's a lot that we were able to get out of this story that I don't think has ever been, you know, on camera before. We were able to get the incident in the words of the people that were there uh, from their own malice, even people like Paul who passed away last year. We have these audio taped interviews from uh, 1976 that Bill Brand was kind enough to give to us, um, and we were able to include those in the movie. So you're actually hearing, you know, some of this stuff from from the mouths of of the people who lived it. Wow, and that's one of the things yeah. that I found really compelling. I mean, it was cool that, I mean, there it it's a very uh, it's fun to list to listen to these two watch these two movies um, because it's a, a singular incident, but but I love the detail and how um, you you obviously put a, a lot of time and effort into creating uh, a movie that that is compelling, and I, I think any big footer would love to watch these movies. So, um, yeah, it, uh, that's awesome. I mean, I mean, that, great that job, is kind though, of I mean. thanks, man. That's yeah, that's great. But like when when we do this, we it is it is the challenge of making this entertaining while also being you know, true to what we originally set out to do, which is not to do the, you know, over-the-top reenactments and all that kind of stuff and just let the people kind of tell the story. And, I mean, in this one, I think we lucked out with those tapes. Um, I I don't know that without the audio tapes, I don't know that we would have made a 40-minute 40, uh, movie. I think it would have been what I originally intended to do, which was a 15-minute short film. Um, but when we got these tapes, it just kind of opened our eyes to how much you know, actually went on there. And we don't just chronicle the Hebert Road incident in the movie. We also kind of go into the history of um, sightings in and around uh, Whitehall, but also the Adirondacks and kind of how the Adirondack culture views Bigfoot and that kind of thing as well. So, I mean, there's there's definitely a extremely long-form movie you could make about this. And, you know, I'd, I hope someday we could revisit this in some capacity because there's, there's a lot more to the story than what we were we were even able to to get, but I think for for what we got, I I couldn't be, I really couldn't be proud of what we managed to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, one of the uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny is that the, uh, especially as West Coasters do not the first thing place we uh, New York is not the first place we think of uh, as being uh, Bigfoot country, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But it, it it's cool that you guys. Uh, and and uh, one of the things that was compelling to me was the map where they showed the uh, Adirondack, excuse me, Adirondack Mountains and and placing some other uh, national forest inside of it because uh, there is a huge amount of, of uh, so like, yeah I mean I mean for from just just from my own curiosity because you guys are West Coast and you're out there where these vast kind of forests are just naturally in the Pacific Northwest like. Did it take you both by surprise? Like, like I mean, the opening shot of this movie is this expansive shot flying towards mm-hmm. these mountains that seem to go off into the horizon. 
I mean, did did that take you both by surprise? Because it did me. I'd, I'd never been aware of the Adirondacks being as vast and, uh, I guess, unexplored as they are. Yeah. Well, it, one of, it, I mean, for me, yeah, I mean, for me, it really did put, it was a great way to start it because it, it laid out a context of, of what we're talking about. I mean, even people in the Pacific Northwest uh, aren't, aren't, a, the layperson doesn't really think about how much vast forest there is out here, but let alone, I mean, people think about New York and they think about New York City, but so that really did set a context for for the entire movie. Yeah, it's truly a huge area. Uh, you know, I, I'm lucky I have friends out that way, and uh, I, I get pictures here and there, but uh, the opening scene, yeah, it really puts it into context. You get a, a feeling of vast wilderness, uh, which it really is. Um, parts of it super remote, um, treacherous, uh, and um, it really put in the context, like Gunnar was saying, uh, and, uh, you know, that, that was a perfect way to start the film, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I I was really, really thrilled with that. And I mean, you know, like I said, this is not, I don't think we can take credit for any of the scenery in the movie, obviously, because <laughs> it's like you just point the camera in any direction and you're going to get an awesome shot because of how, you know, how how it looks out there. And it's really unique from other parts of the Adirondacks, even in Whitehall, because you're actually not in the Adirondacks in Whitehall. You're right at the base of them. I mean, you drive two minutes down the road and you're in the Adirondacks, but Whitehall's right at the base of them. Um so you get a really unique kind of topography there where you've got these farm fields, but they're surrounded by these kind of foothill mountains and these behind the foothill mountains are these bigger mountains stretching off into the distance. And you've got, you do have more, a little bit more civilization in Whitehall, but you drive an hour outside of town and you are in the middle of nowhere. Like we stayed when, when I went back in July, we stayed in a town called Wells uh, in the Adirondacks, and this was legit Adirondacks. Like it was two hours into the middle of the park, and there was no cell phone reception anywhere around where we were. We had to drive over an hour to get cell phone reception um, at all. Which I'm sure you guys are. I'm sure where you are, you you run into that too, probably yeah. uh, <laughs> normally. But for me, like uh, I'm from Ohio, so that was a little shocking. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But what, what, what did you have, you know, in regards to some of the witness and uh, other people you interviewed had on, on the film, was there, we, we, we kind of touched on this a little bit, but was there any hesitation? Did you have anybody that said, you know, no? Um, or did you get a, a generally good uh, positive feedback, uh, people that were willing to participate that really wanted to get this um, this story back out there? Uh, I think for for... As far as the Aber incident is concerned, yeah. um, it was a uh, challenge, and it was a challenge. It was a, a supreme challenge with Minerva to get Howie Caton to come on camera. So I was, you know, I yeah. was prepared for a challenge. Um, this was actually, I guess, less of a challenge in that way to to get them to talk. But it was definitely an obstacle. There were obstacles in the way of getting Brian on camera again to talk about it the number one being that brian just feels like brian gosselin his brother paul was you know at the at the scene that night and he was around for everything that happened had his own sighting he's a prime focus in the movie but he's been a part of other film projects where they either made it out to be something it wasn't you know that he's he's talked before or he talked with us and i think it's on camera actually somewhere but he 
he talked with us about how there's these shows where they show him in like police attire running out into the field with his gun out, you know, like a, like it's yeah. an action movie or something. And and for him, he just didn't want to be a part of another movie that was going to make it out to be something it wasn't. You know, he he wanted to see the story told the way it happened. And um, yeah. so that that was kind of a, a challenge for us. I I sent him a copy of of Minerva, and I said, you know, this is what we did. I said, um, you know, it's going to be a better movie than Minerva. We're going to continue to improve with every movie we do. Uh, so, so I think once he saw Minerva and he saw we do have a, a, you know, our goal is to tell the story honestly and, and truthfully because it's like Brandon and I always say these stories are dramatic or scary or terrifying or whatever, uh, whatever you want to say. They're they're enough of that on their own. You know, just the well reality behind it is yeah. is pretty creepy on its own. Um, well said. Yeah, without without some sort of you know dramatic re- reenactment. So um, once he saw Minerva and he realized that's kind of our angle, he was he was much more uh, happy to talk with us about it, and he was very giving. I mean, they're all they were all very giving of their time, especially you know Bill and and Brian. But Paul Bartholomew took me around uh, in his car when I was there in July and showed me all these locations, and then he spent time with us again when we were there in September. Um, and, and then actually he came up to Ohio for a, a Bigfoot conference that I happened to be at and we spent, we got to spend some time there. So I, I got pretty close with Paul and I've definitely grown, Bill and I have spent, um, even in the lead up to the filming, we spent at least a few hours per week on the phone, just kind of talking about, you know, different things connected to the A-Bear incident. And, um, you know, he's very interested in, in the long history of, of sightings in that region beyond just, you know, modern sightings. He's, he's done a ton of research into the native American legends. Um, so he's got a lot of knowledge about that stuff, which I, I eat that stuff up cause that's kind of, I love the historical things. That's, that's what builds uh for me, that's what builds a mountain of evidence in favor of these, uh, things actually existing for me. Right. And, um, so I got really close with all of these people. Uh, people like the Gibsons, uh, Dave and Pan, they're in the film. They were extremely giving of their time. Now, as far as locals um, who have had sightings, we really, the extent of that was Dave and Pam Gibson. Um, uh, outside of them, we were not able to get anyone on camera. Um, it's just a thing where people are really afraid of being ridiculed for it, you know? Um and and the other thing, I think the other challenge was finding Bigfoot had just come through, uh, you know, the year before. So I think some of those people had already told their story on TV, and they're like, "Well, what are you going to offer that, you know, that that finding Bigfoot didn't?" So, um, yeah. I mean, we had I had a phone call the other night. Actually, I was in the middle of of taping a podcast uh, with Mark Matsky, and I had a phone call from Vermont, and I answered the phone, and the guy said. Um, hey, I had a sighting back in the 80s, and I thought you might want to hear about it. And I said, I said, yeah, I'd love to hear about it. I said, you know, I'm a little busy right now. He said, well, when you when you come up to premiere the movie, I'll talk to you about it. He said, but he added this stipulation. He's like, I'm not going to talk about it on camera, though. So I found that I I have found that to be really a common occurrence. People have sightings, they see things, uh, but they do not want to come on camera to talk about it because of the ridicule factor. Do you know? What drives me nuts is when I go into watching, you know, I, I go to watch a documentary or, or something of that nature, and I've been a part of a few, and 
uh, you know, and I've been approached by some, and I'm very hesitant because of this very factor that uh, they, they, they twist your words, they twist things, they cut scenes, they, they edit stuff a certain way. And I'm really, uh, I, I'm really proud that you guys, I'm really happy that you guys don't do that. You just let it flow in. It is what it is. And like you said, you don't need much. There, most of these encounters and story stuff have so much going on, it's, it's very exciting. You really don't need to do the shock and awe and edit to, to be a certain way. And you're very truthful in your endeavors. And that is something I, I truly, truly appreciate because uh, I just get tired of, you know, seeing these, well, they're, most of them are mockumentaries because they're just, they're kind of a joke. They don't really, they're not really factual. They don't really care about the history. They don't care about the people. That's for sure. And, and it just makes a big joke of it. And, and I leave it, leave some of these film disgusted. Whereas, you know, like Minerva Monster and um, whatnot, you leave feeling uh, good and that uh, justice was served no matter what, truly transpired it was an honest approach to filming and uh and and treating uh treating those that came forward and were part of uh the whole incident well yeah there's it's um well brandon should talk about the seriousness that we approach it you always talk about yeah that. yeah well thank you very much about for saying that we really appreciate it um yeah, I don't know. Like you said, it's just there's no reason to to um, make stuff up, over dramatize it. Um, a lot of the stories are just dramatic enough, and you know, especially with the cases that we've decided to kind of pursue. Um, you know, when you have Beast of Whitehall, you know, the creature is extremely aggressive. Um, you know, we people theorize we don't we have no idea why it was in the area, why it was in the area for like a week. Um, but for whatever reason, it was in, it was there for about a week at least, and it didn't want people in that vicinity. And so it was extremely aggressive. And you don't need to; you can just tell the story as is. I mean, you got eleven people, eight police officers, you know, and, and all kinds of stuff happen. You know, you don't need to over dramatize that stuff. Um, but yeah. the other the other factor in that though is the people that are involved. A lot of these people, like Brian Gossam, for example, you go and meet him, and he's he seems extremely credible. Um, well-spoken, seems intelligent, he's a nice guy, and you just have no reason to not believe him about what he saw. I mean, we're still skeptical about the existence of the right. creature kind of thing, but as far as him seeing something, him believing that he saw something for sure, I mean, there's there's no reason to, to not believe him. But So when we speak to those people, and you got to think, neither Seth or I have seen anything like this. Um, well, we got to try to put ourselves in their shoes as far as, like, if we had seen something like this, how would we want to be treated in a, in a film situation or otherwise, right. you know? And so we try yeah. to treat people like that. Um, we take it very seriously and um, try to portray their stories as they should be on film. Yeah, there's a there's a trust you build up to with the people. And, um, I mean, I can speak about this because I talked to him last night, but Bill, Bill Brand was very hesitant, you know, to do a movie, and I think Brian was too. Um, just because the way they'd been treated, and Bill, I know Bill watched the movie yesterday and said he he loved it. He had actually watched it three times when I talked to him, and I mean, my wife could back me up on this. When I was <laughs> when I listened to his voicemail, uh, I felt like a weight had come off my shoulders. Just because you really, you you genuinely are concerned that they're going to hate what you did with their story because they've entrusted you with a piece of their lives, like. I think one of the big problems with some of these other documentaries is they don't take that seriously. They're just looking for 
a crazy monster story to put on film. And we take what we do very seriously. I don't know if that's because we're small time, you know, little independent filmmakers or what it is, but like we take every single story extremely seriously and want to pay respect to those people who are willing to give us their, their story. Um, so when we hear things back from people like Bill or, or the Caton family, who I actually, with the Caton family, I actually got to sit with them and watch the movie in their house the first time that they, that they watched the, yeah, the first time they watched the movie. And, um, it was, what's funny about that, it was during a week where they had been having a lot of activity, um, on their property, including, you know, rocks thrown onto the roof. And I'm sitting there watching this movie. I was like, I'll tell you what. If if rocks start hitting the roof of this house while I'm watching Nerva Monster <laughs> with the Cage family, I could I can die happy. Like right now I can I can die happy. But yeah, yeah we take we take it very seriously and we, we um we do a lot to earn the trust of these people. So part of part of it I think, you know, and, and it hopefully comes across in the movie is that we are trying to pay respect to them. Yeah, you guys really give me hope. You guys really give me hope, uh and, and for uh, I hope other uh, doc, you know, those involved in documentaries on 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 these subject, you know, the subject matter, uh, look towards you guys uh, because you guys are, like I said, uh, you're approaching honestly, and and there's no uh, malpractice. I mean, everything is just, it is what it is. Let's get the story out there and and let it run. And I, you give me hope for uh, TV production in general, m- uh, mock, you know, uh, documentaries and everything. Really give me hope, and uh, so, like I said, I can't give you guys enough kudos because it, it's. Uh, I, I want you guys to be able to get funded constantly and continue with this stuff. There's a ton of these stories around the nation, uh, some well known, some lesser known, and mm-hmm. um, they're valuable historical uh, pieces, uh, you know, to our history and to communities, and they mean a lot. Yeah, I agree. Thanks, man. That's re- that's really awesome to hear. Yeah, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, no. Uh, that- it's funny because these, to me, the the movies are are the opposite of the the crap that is based on a true story. And these are the true stories, and and you guys tell the story very well, and and they're very professionally done. Which you know, there's a there's enough like as Shane referred to mockumentaries of of the subject, uh, and we already have a media that skews anything that. That uh, is presented, you know, publicly as as some kind of joke, and um, it's very refreshing. I, I, I my mind just starts, you know, clicking off the things that would be really cool to see done in this manner. You know, uh, it's funny Shane and I talked earlier, and it was like we'd love to see like you guys hook up with Mark Marcel, who who rediscovered uh, the the area where the Ape Canyon incident. That, I mean, that Ooh, would be yeah. Like, yeah, I mean that. I'd love to see that that uh, small town monsters movie done. Uh, I mean, I just can start clicking. My mind just starts clicking, man. These these guys would do them right. So it, it's uh, it's so refreshing to to see the subject handled this way. What's interesting to me um, is Seth mentioned that he's not a hundred percent Bigfoot believer per se. So you're actually really doing it in a uh a documentary fashion, you know, and without a an agenda per se of of proving one thing or another or you know, it's 
you're just telling the story, which yeah, is, I, is really cool. Yeah, one of the one of the really cool things that I've had happen is that um, some some local people to me had had discovered Minerva Monster because of the you know the local press it had gotten, and these guys are uh, they do a podcast about like comic books or something, and um, they checked out Minerva Monster just because we were local, and they're super skeptical. They're completely skeptical, but they. Um, watched Minerva and now they've watched Whitehall and that's kind of what they love about the movie is that it's not trying to force them to believe in Bigfoot but they both told me it definitely opened their eyes to the fact that there's probably more going on than what they had originally thought which was that everyone that sees a Bigfoot's just crazy so you you know you see what we do which is to just let people tell their story and it does kind of Make if you're in that camp, if you're in the camp that well, anyone that sees a Bigfoot must just be crazy, and you watch someone like Howie Caton or uh, Brian Gosselin or you know talk about their sighting, it's going to make you question your belief that everyone's just nuts. Um, but you know, I I do think it's it's completely welcoming to skeptics or believers. I mean. Either way, it's it's kind of where we're coming from. Um, it, no matter what, these are fascinating stories. You can't, you cannot possibly deny that these are fascinating stories. And I think, honestly, I think that Whitehall is going to start to prove that, um, even in areas where we didn't get to with Minerva, just because of the fact that Whitehall has already been accepted into three film festivals. Yeah. And, you know, that's something that's not well heard of when it comes to. Um, films with this type of subject matter. In fact, I was advised by a couple other guys that have made documentaries about paranormal subjects not to even bother submitting to film festivals. Uh, they said you, you, you do not get into film festivals if you're making uh, quote-unquote paranormal films just because of the subject matter. They're, they'd rather show a movie about something you know that's socially significant rather than a Bigfoot sighting. But we've we're, we seem to be doing okay so far, and I'm, you know, I again, like this isn't me saying the movie's just the greatest thing ever. I really think it comes down to the story and the people that are involved in the story. Yeah, you know, it is socially significant. It truly is because these things transpired regardless of of what actually is and was. And you, you, your approach reminds me of a lot of what I do with my research. You know, I, when I interview people. I don't go in believing them. I don't go in doubting them. I, I let them tell their their encounter, their story, and I listen to them. And I take pieces from that, you know. And um, even when I leave an interview, um, you know, I chew on stuff. But I never go in there with an attitude of, oh, this has probably uh, never happened or, oh, this absolutely happened, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's important, uh, you know. And, and I, I think that you kind of reflect that with with your approach to these documentaries, and and the, the historical factor, uh, you know, it, it truly is socially important because um, at one time and place, you know, especially with uh, like you know the Whitehall incident and the Minerva incident, it impacted not just one person, not just two people, it impacted a community, and that makes it socially important uh, and historical. Wow, I should I need to hire you as like a, a PR person because that was fantastic. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna like copy all that down or something afterward and put it in the next press release. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's so true. It really is. It, it is true. And uh, and uh, you know what you guys are doing is is very valuable. I find it valuable 
to me personally, um, even I had nothing to do with um, the subject matter at hand. Um, I, I know I could go into uh, a documentary like this and watch it and appreciate it for what it is and not have any real fascination with the subject, but just the, the people involved and the, the impact it had on the communities. Yeah, I, we're hearing that from people too. You know, um, particularly the thing that seems to be coming up most common is that men with wives who are not into the subject have been have been making their wives watch it, and the wives actually enjoy it. I've had I think four guys tell me that so far. So I mean, for us, that's always awesome to hear because I'm I'm as curious about how skeptics, or maybe not even skeptics, but people who just don't care, um, respond to these movies because that's you know, we want to open the eyes to people that, hey, this is this is a really fascinating subject. That's I I, I always say it. There's a million avenues to explore here, um, and and how can you not be fascinated by the stories? Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the stories, you know, did you guys happen to view? I mean, uh, happen to view any police documentation of this or reports at all? Uh, did that was that a part of uh, your research into the the, the documentary? The the most I was able to do with that was to talk to Paul Bartholomew, who was able to view a lot of the police reports and the police logbooks. Um, the problem with Whitehall is that these cases and the logbooks haven't been digitized, um, which is also actually something we ran into with Minerva Monster. Mm-hmm. Um, with I Minerva remember. Monster, yeah, with Minerva, one of the most challenging parts of Minerva was getting the police report from the Stark County Sheriff's Department. It took uh, three days of back and forth and them saying they couldn't find the report and then me having to find further information to give them and that kind of thing. With Whitehall, that didn't even we didn't even get that far. It was basically just like, listen, these are not, you're not going to find them. So um, they're not completely closed off to having these reports. I think they do exist. And Paul Bartholomew says some of the stuff he has seen um, – the the perfect example, I guess, in the movie to kind of let you into the behind-the-scenes movie magic kind of stuff <laughs> is the, the Frank McFerrin report that's in the film. Frank McFerrin's a man that lived on off of Carver's Falls Road, which is a road that diverges from Bear right outside of Whitehall and then kind of runs behind Bear Road with a big forest in between them. Um, he lived right off Carver's Falls Road, and he claimed to have fired shots at a creature in the same week as the Abear incident, as part of the Abear incident, really, because I I refer to the Abear incident as anything that took place that week. Um, so this would be part of that incident, and he claimed to have fired shots at the creature, and that report that's in the movie is not the actual report. That is from uh, Paul Bartholomew's written. A recording of what the logbook said. So Paul actually wrote down exactly word for word what was recorded in the logbook, and then he gave that to me, and then I created it with like an old 1970s type font, you know, to kind of give it the appearance of an old logbook. But that that is still exactly word for word what was in the logbook, but it wasn't the actual logbook. Um, but that stuff is is some of it's out there. Um, and it it also depends on who you're talking to. You know, Brian Gosselin says in the movie he thinks this stuff was all, you know, hidden away or, or taken away somewhere. Um, but if you talk to other people, they think it's still there somewhere. It just has, hasn't been digitized or cataloged. It's in a right, box yeah. sitting on somebody's shelf or in somebody's closet. That's an X file. It's an yes. X file. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, what do you guys what do you guys have planned for the fu- future um, episodes? What do you got? What do we What do we got to look forward to? Well, the next big one is Boggy Creek Monster, um, which we are uh, about a week. We have about a week left in the crowdfunding Kickstarter campaign for Boggy Creek Monster, which is uh, being made with Lyle Blackburn as a consultant. Obviously, because Lyle's Great. kind of the go go to guy for the Boggy Creek stuff. Um, so that's all our focus at this point. We're we're finishing up the DVD and sending it out for Whitehall in the next day or two. So my focus has shifted completely from A Bear and Whitehall, New York, to uh, Falk, Arkansas, and kind of the you know the bottom lands down there. Um, so so Legend of Boggy Creek is a movie we love, obviously, and the the Falk incidents is what I am 100% focused on right now. Beyond Boggy Creek, all I know is if we can make more small town monsters, if we can get the money together to make more small town monsters, I would like to do something next that is not Bigfoot. I'd like to do some other kind of cryptid animal, uh, cryptid creature sighting that isn't an upright walking, you know, primate. Um, Maybe a lake monster or, you know, thunderbirds or something. Just something so I could shift it a little bit for for at least a film or two. There's there's still dozens of Bigfoot stories I want to cover. Obviously, I love... Yeah, there's. I, I'm Hundreds, a big Momo yeah. fan. I I love the Missouri Monster and I love Big Muddy Monster. I always talk about those two as being two stories that I adore. So I'd love to do those. But um, I just think a movie or two that we could focus a little bit on another type of cryptid would would open up the storytelling possibilities, particularly with B-roll um, for what we could do, you know, with the scenery and things like that. So there's there really is an endless. Uh, supply of these stories, the only problem is the really famous stories or even some of the really cool stories, they seem to, we keep running into this problem of primary witnesses passing away. Um, you know, and, and when you think about the time frame that a lot of these took place in, it, it kind of makes sense. You know, there's a lot of these people are being lost to time and uh, you got to wor- wonder if, if in a lot of those cases when they do pass away, if we're not losing the story with them. Yeah, and one of the things that I appreciate about the process that you guys are doing this is that you're cap, you know, you're capturing uh, for historical purposes some of those those uh, that are on the fringe where you've got people that the story, these huge stories from the 70s, or um, and you've got people like you said, you're losing witnesses at this point. So I, yeah. I'm really. Yeah, it, uh, it is. I think it's very important that you you do getting in pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. So you should start that crowdfunding campaign right away. So the process, <laughs> I mean the the process that you guys use, I mean obviously um it's it's not a cheap um endeavor to create a quality uh, documentary. Um mm-hmm. how do you guys go about, you know, funding these and and what's the let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, in a way, it's I'm I'm on the fence about it. In a way, it is cheap. I mean, you can't afford to do it. And and I was you know just talking to someone the other day about how you know the phones have some phones have better cameras than like a a, a G4. I mean, you can go out and get a, a, a an iPhone with 4K capabilities now, which is insane. But um, you know, and there's there's free video editing software and all that kind of stuff. 
So I do think the door is wide open for people. If you have a story you want to tell and you're someone who has an interest in filmmaking, I I strongly encourage anyone to make a film because if if I can do it, I think I really I and this is some like humble thing. I'm being dead serious. If I can do it, I really think anyone can do it. You just have to have a drive to learn how to, you know, put a movie together. Um there's there's there is a lot that goes into it though beyond just filming something and then editing it together. And that's what we found. You know, I mean, the the pre-production on these movies is pretty crazy. You've got to track down witnesses and talk to them and line up your interviews and figure out what your B-roll is going to be and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, now, Boggy Creek's a very different situation. With Whitehall and Minerva, I did all the pre, pre-production research myself. So I contacted witnesses. I, You know, I had to track down phone numbers. I even got one of those creepy... Um, what is it? Those they're, they're they're like find people searches. You know, you can you go on some <laughs> creepy site and you pay like twenty bucks and you can track down anyone's personal information, which is terrifying. But that's how I got some of the phone numbers for witnesses in these movies is by one of those sites. And you you have to spend a lot of time just doing that research and tracking down people. Um, so you got to do all that stuff, and then you start trying to convince them you know, that you you can make a movie that is respectful of them and you just want to tell their story and all that kind of stuff. But you, there's more to it. There's this there's this constant idea that you have to be asking why. You know, so so someone tells you they saw the Bigfoot in the, behind their backyard. Well, why was the Bigfoot there? Why were you there? Why, you know, like, there's always got to be a why. You've got to keep driving the story forward together with the, or forward with the why question. Um, and when you're asking why, you're going to come up with more avenues that the story can go down. So... It, the storytelling part of it, there's a large part of that that takes place before the movie's ever gone to film, and usually that's one person just sitting down and figuring out who's going to be in this and, and why. And then after that, you the, then comes the fun part, which is the actual filming, which I think Brandon would agree. Like Once you're there and you're sitting down with witnesses and all that, and, and even like the way him and I worked on Whitehall, which was an insane, insane, quick-paced, day and a half you know we'd already shot a bunch of this but we when brandon and i went we had a day and a half to shoot all our interviews again um i mean it was a crazy crazy time and there's that aspect of it and i really think that's the fun part you know pointing a camera at things and making sure your audio and your lighting is good and all that kind of stuff and then when you sit down to the editing that is the most tedious and time-consuming thing you can possibly imagine and um but that's where your real story is going to come out. You can do, I strongly recommend doing a ton of that pre-planning and knowing what your story is and knowing all the ins and outs of the case. But when you sit down in front of the computer and you're piecing together the story, there's going to be things that that come out. And and honestly, the first perfect example is Paul and and the kids um, with Whitehall. You know, we had we had this audio tape that was given to us with Paul and Marty and Bart. And, you know, my original thinking was, well, we don't have these guys. I don't want to overwhelm our audience with audio taped interviews. I think originally there was, what, like a minute and a half, maybe a minute and a half of audio tape with Paul Gosselin in the movie. And Brandon was very adamant that there needs to be more with these guys. They need to be featured prominently in the film. They need to have a prominent role in the story. And we we might have... Did we go back and forth on it? I mean, we might have even <laughs> argued about it. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, and like that's another another part of these movies is like you just got to be ready to pick your battles and know when you're going to argue over this stuff because you're 
you're going to love the story and you're going to want what's best for the story. And that's the amazing thing about working with Brandon is he's always wanting more out of the story. And that was kind of his input. I mean, you can speak to that, but that was kind of his input was he wanted those guys in the film more than they were. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just felt like, you know, in the early rough cuts we had, um, Brian, because, you know, obviously he's here and he's, he's willing to speak to us and everything. Um, we had him as the you know, main focal point. He's still a huge focal point of the, of the whole story. But, I mean, for me, especially in, like, in a kind of a movie setting, when, when we were kind of thinking about what the movie was, was going to end up to be, I, I thought the three teenagers in the truck and seeing this thing multiple times and um, the aggressive nature of the creature and then the police all coming out that night with them, um, I, just, I, I just felt like it was a miracle that we even had. Um, audio tape interviews with those guys, especially just a, a day or two after the, the whole thing happened, yeah. and it's still surviving. You know, from '76, and um, you know, one of them was passed away, and all that kind of stuff. It was just kind of a miracle that we had those tapes. So for me, it was like we have to get all three of these guys in the movie. Um, and you know, we had a lot of Paul Gosselin's tapes in there too. So I was like, my suggestions were just that we, even if we, a lot of them just repeated themselves, you know, because they were all interviewed separately, and they all told the same story. Um, so if we, you know, to get, you know, if we want to put uh, Marty in there, we took out a line of Paul's and put, you know, Marty's line in there. But in the end result, I think when you when you watch it, you'll see, you know, that all three of these guys are represented in the tapes, and and their story is much more a part of this of the Whitehall incident in our in our movie. Yeah, and and I mean yeah. that's that's part of the process is working with other people. I say it all the time. You cannot. I mean, I'm sh- I know there are guys out there who claim to, like, one-man army their movie, you know, and, and I know there are people who one-man army their movies, but with ours, we have so many things. There's so many moving pieces and so many things involved that there is no way um, I could do this on my own or Brandon could do this on his own. Or it, You've got to have – we have Matt Harris who contributes artwork to each movie. We have Maz Adams on Whitehall who helped with sketches. He did the kind of facial – uh, sketches of the creature, and then we had art given to us by other people, uh, locals, you know, Eric Miner and Sharon Ellis, um, and then we've got um, Sam Sharon doing posters, and I mean, if anyone is, you know, interested in how to make a movie and, and tell a story, you're just going to have to be prepared to collaborate and bring in other people, because it's, it's impossible to do it on your own, and those other people, especially in the case of Brandon, will help the story um, to be a better story and to be the, honestly to be the best story it can, it can be. And right. um, I mean, once your editing is done and you're done with the movie, your, your work is just beginning because this is indie film and you're not, you don't have a huge studio behind you who's putting your movie out. And at that point, um, the, the biggest benefit to the whole thing is if you have any kind of knowledge of how to write a press release or try to get press for your film, um, you've got to try to build your audience because, you know, the Bigfoot community will step up in a big way and support you, but the the Bigfoot community is not is not that large, especially when you're focusing on just, you know, trying yeah. to get that, that kind of uh, social media presence behind you. That right. still is not a huge crowd, and you've got to try and draw as many eyes to these things as possible simply because if you're going to want to make more movies, you've got to make enough money on them to make more movies. Um, yeah. So that's that's going to play a huge role in it. And, you know, and for some people, they're not going to care about that. They might just want to tell one story. They might have one little story they want to tell. And those are the people that I say, like, just rent a camera or go get a Canon T3i for 200 bucks on eBay and download sure the latest. Yeah, use your iPhone. <laughs> and, and honestly, 
Hey, the crazy thing about that is the audio, a lot of the audio in Beast of Whitehall was recorded externally with my iPhone. Um, there's actually, I mean, this gets like super tech geeky, nerdy stuff, but like we had a, uh, a little microphone called a, a Rhodes Smart Labs, and it's actually a, a lavalier mic that hooks it into your, telef- or your, your iPhone. And you record the audio externally, you know, into the smart lab, and that's what we used on all our uh, major interviews in the field on Abear. Simply because there were crickets, there was wind, uh, there was so much noise out in that field that day, it was insane. So I really feel like for for filmmakers, especially, there's there's a door that's wide open, and if you're into the cryptid subject or Bigfoot or whatever, and you have a movie or a story you want to tell, whether it's fictional or non-fictional, I, I I always just say go do it. Yeah. Well, you guys, you know what? You guys truly are kind of like the uh, Indiana Jones of documentaries because you guys oh, a lot I like of times it's, it's a race Can against I quote time. That? Yeah. That, that was <laughs> sure. a great. That so, was a great uh, picture there, Shane. But it's the true Indiana because. <laughs> yeah, because it's a lot of times the race against time. You know, uh, these stories and, and reports and encounters, they're getting um, buried and, and people pass away, like I mentioned earlier. And it's kind of a lot of times once you get involved with it, you know, you know, you really have to dive all in on this and really um, approach it with a sense of urgency because uh, as time passes, you know, people pass, uh, stories get further buried down. Facts become, you know, obscured and everything else. Uh, do you guys? Is that how you feel when you approach uh, documentaries like this? Yeah, yeah. I think it's actually kind of terrifying in a way because, um, you know, with with Minerva, it was a health thing. The Rebecca Caton was probably would have been in the movie if her health hadn't deteriorated in the month before we started shooting. Um, you know, and and you always do have this idea in your head that. Anything could happen. You know, we could arrange an interview with someone, and they could either change their mind or or something terrible could happen the night before, and the movie falls apart at that point. In a lot of cases, you know, we've already invested time and money into the story to begin with. And, um, you know, in the case of Whitehall, it was our own money. There was no crowdfunding campaign. There was no nothing. Whitehall was entirely independently produced out of pocket. Um, we, we put our own money into it. And my dad actually drove the car to New York so we could shoot our interviews in September. I mean, like, like he wanted to be a part of it too. So it's like you're doing whatever you can to, to get the story told. And a lot of times it really does feel like you're in some sort of race against time. And what's funny about that is um, when I was originally, and this was last summer when we were first coming up with the idea of doing the Whitehall story, I knew already that we were in a race against time because of the fact that Dan Gordon had died about five months prior to the start of filming, and Dan was intrinsically tied to the Whitehall case, as it says in the film. And uh, Paul Gosselin passed away the day that Minerva Monster premiered at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference. So we knew, and that was the same day we had definitively decided we were making a Whitehall movie. So we, we said, we're making a Whitehall movie, and then like two hours later we were like, oh, hey, and your number one witness just passed away. Um, yes, so when we were... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When we were coming up with the, you know, kind of the taglines for the movie and stuff, one of the things that I was going to actually use as a tagline for the movie was something that referred back to that fact. Like the story might be lost to time if you don't tell it. 
And it might sound to some people, it might sound like we are um, uh, over, maybe overstating it, like you're you're overselling the importance of a documentary or something. But it really, if you're doing it honestly and you're just telling a story and you're just getting these people to talk about it on camera, honestly, who's to say these people will ever talk about it again on camera? Exactly. And in the case of Minerva. In the case of Minerva Monster, Howie had never talked about it on camera ever before, um, and and had turned down other TV shows and things when it came to talking about it. So Brian just said that our movie was the last last one he was ever going to do, right? Yeah. So Brian, Brian in the uh, during the making of the movie told us, and I think it's on camera. It told us he'll never do another one after Beast of Whitehall. Um, so there really is a an element of this, and I. I and I know, again, for some people, they're just they, maybe they don't care about that. But it, it's like it all goes back to what Shane was talking about earlier in the show, which is that it, it is a piece of history that can be lost. And is being lost. Yeah, I mean, it mm-hmm. truly is. <clears throat> it right in front of your eyes, and it does make it a race against time in a lot of ways. You know, you think, oh, I'll, I'll jump on this story and, and we'll make a, a documentary about it. Um, and it's crazy that uh, as you're doing these documentaries, I would imagine, I've never done one, but uh, that, you know, the pieces, some of the most intricate pieces start falling away or, or you know, like people passing away and stuff. And then um, you're like, well, that's a piece of history <clears throat> gone, uh, uh, eyewitness encounter, intricate part of the documentary gone. And it truly is a race against time in a lot of, uh, in, in a certain fashion. I mean, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and it and the other thing about that, and something that I I know of because of my involvement with the NAWAC is that um, anytime Brian Brown watches one of our movies, he'll text me incessantly um, while he's watching it because he's always referring back to behavior patterns or something that are repeated in the films. So if you are a Bigfooter and you're like really into um, examining data or data or whatever, you know, behavior patterns and that kind of thing. There, there are things that are brought up in both of the movies we've done so far, Beast of Whitehall and Minerva Monster, that I hear constantly in your typical Bigfoot report. So in, in Whitehall, it's kind of this creature with the red eyes. In Minerva, it's the rock throwing and the behavior mimicking what we hear so often the in smell. the smell and that kind of thing. Um, so if you are a Bigfooter, there is that, that element, too, that I think is you know, kind of a fun Easter egg. Well, real quick, though, um, just to go back to what you were saying, you know, we're about to obviously do, we've been talking about Boggy Creek Monster and uh, Smoky Crabtree, who's extremely tied to the case, um, very famously tied with the case. Uh, he just passed away last month, I think. So, um, you know, that was that was a person who we would have been able to have on camera and would have been able to flush out the story very well for us, you know, or, or get us into different places or whatever. And he just recently passed away. So it's another situation just like that and he's on the he's on the original witness list we have a we have a witness list or a list of interviews we want to conduct for the film and and uh it was sent to us back in i want to say november by lyle and smokey's right at the top of the list and smokey's gone yeah yeah wow truly uh you know it uh, these documentaries are truly an art and uh, like I said, a piece of history. And uh, I, for most, you know, I don't know how how much they appreciate what you guys do and what it takes to get these things done, and, and what I truly do. And it, you know, I, I I watch them and I go, wow, there's something captured 
in a moment of time that will probably never be replicated, never happen again. And yet I now can watch this and look back on it and appreciate it uh, without having, you know, I, I have the opportunity to do so because of your endeavors. Whereas if you didn't take upon doing this, uh, it would be lost, uh, you know, and it's it's truly sad, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Well, I mean, one of the things the... that Seth Sorry, went into the the uh, whole humble that anybody can do this, and I I have to yeah. disagree that you really got to give credit where credit's due. What you guys do is is unique, and not any everybody can do it. All the, all that you talk about work. It's funny because it's always people that that have that ability um, think that because they can do it that anybody can do it, and I I can guarantee you that the way that uh, you guys approach it is unique and and uh, not not everybody can do it just because somebody can point a camera at at uh, uh, the woods or point a camera at at a do an interview. It, it's the way that it's put together and, and the approach and the collaborative effort um, really comes across as a good product. So um, don't don't cut, uh, cut yourself short by or sell yourself short by saying that you know that other people could do what you do. There are people that could do it, but that mo- the, the vast majority of us do not have your vision or or your experience that to create something that that uh, is as as cool as the Minerva monster and the Beast of Whitehall. So. Well, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Um, one thing I was going to say was, um, shoot, I just lost my train of thought. What was you say, What were you saying <laughs> before that? We were talking about, uh, I don't know, now I forget. Oh, my gosh. I got so wrapped up in, in Gunner's praise of me. Yeah. Let me bring up. Needle out and pop that because uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, well, maybe, maybe uh, if you uh, get that thought back, sweet, awesome. You know, I was going to ask you in regards to both Minerva uh, film and the Beast of Whitehall. Did you guys? I mean, was there was there anything in either film um, while you guys were uh, producing it uh, that shocked you? That just really you just came away going, wow. I mean, and did you guys find any? I mean, and I know you did, but you know, any new pieces of evidence that have never been shared before? I mean, kind of obvious you did, but... Yeah, well, with Minerva, and I'm going to... Brandon, actually, let's start with Whitehall, because I want Brandon to talk a little bit about Minerva, because Brandon's actually spent a, a bit more time with the Catons after the film came out than I did. Um, but with Whitehall, I think what 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 we got that has never been on camera before is this uh, witness, uh, John Winslow, who claims to have been a part of the Bear incident sighting. Now, it's an unusual piece of evidence in that we have not been able to verify it. And we flat out say it in the movie. We have not been able to verify this. I, I did the best I could to verify this. But unfortunately, the people that he was with supposedly the night of the incident are people who want nothing to do with the case anymore. So for me to get it verified, it's impossible. But he does claim to have been at the sighting the night of the Hebert incident and to have had his own encounter with the creature. And, you know, regardless of 
of what you think of it. It's a fascinating psychological study, if nothing else, as to why, you know, you have to wonder, well, if this guy's making it up, why has he been making it up for 40 plus, you know, around 40 years, including something that you don't know from watching the movie is that John's father was present for the interview. And this is one of the reasons John's in the movie. Um, a few people that would watch that interview would probably say, well, why did you put him in if you can't even verify it? The thing is that his father was with him during this interview, and I spoke to his father afterward, and I said, well, you know, what? how long has he been saying this? And he, said, he told me literally since the night of that initial encounter that the three boys in the truck had. Since that night, he came home saying that he had that encounter, and he has never changed, never wavered. His story stayed the same. Now, I, I can't vouch for him, unfortunately, because I was unable to fully verify his sighting, but it is definitely a fascinating little piece of the story. Whether or not it happened, I don't know, but it's definitely never been shared before. It's never been on camera before. The Frank McFerrin shooting incident, I, I, I believe Paul told us, has never been mentioned before in another documentary, and I think that's a re- really cool little piece, and again, that's a Brandon-forced um, uh, piece of piece of the puzzle. Brandon really wanted that in the film, and I was arguing against it. And in the end, Brandon won out, you, and we included it. <laughs> um, so that that little piece of the story is in there because of Brandon. And I think that's another little you know piece of the puzzle. I mean, you don't really know much. You never hear about the UFO flap, and we only mention it in passing simply because I think it kind of deviates the story away from you know, what it's actually about, which is the Avery incident. But there was this bizarre UFO flap that was taking place um, at the same time as all of this. Um, And then, uh, Brandon, what with Whitehall, didn't you know that you... Oh, with Whitehall? Yeah. Um, As far as stuff that people aren't really familiar with with Whitehall, um, the cassette cassette audio taped interviews, I don't think anyone's heard those. Yeah in the capacity that we, we presented them. So that's really cool. Um, yeah, we, I mean, we said at the beginning of the of the taped interviews, there's a text card that comes up and says those are the property of Bill Brand. Bill took those interviews the day, in the case of the three kids that were there, he took those interviews the day after the A-Bear incident. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I remember my thought, though, real quick. Because um, we were talking about Race Against Time, and what I was yeah. thinking, what I was what I was going to say was um, most of the cryptid entertainment with the subject that you see on TV today and that's real popular, a lot of the time it seems like the story itself or the, the kind of famous incidents aren't very um, – they're not very focused on at all. I mean, you get a little 10-minute blip in the beginning of the episode, and then the rest of the episode is a group of guys going out trying to find Bigfoot in the woods. And that seems yeah. to be kind of across all of this kind of entertainment. Um and so it's again with the race against time thing. It's like, you know, we try to tell the story um, and really focus in on all the details and kind of get that flushed out. Um, but that was the only thought I had. But yeah, I mean, as far yeah. as Minerva, um, we there was a lot of stuff after the movie came out. You know, the Catons really trusted us a lot more. You know, beforehand they didn't know who we were. They probably thought we were just going to make some crappy little film. Um, and but yeah, so they trusted us a lot more, we, and they've they've invited us out a few times, to, you know, around bonfires and stuff like that. Um, and I, I had the uh, privilege to go there last summer, and they had all, basically the whole family there. It was probably thirteen, fourteen of them there, and probably eight or nine of us went up in the woods, in uh, on their property, and, and hiked around for three, four hours. And 
every one of them had different stories and experiences that they've they've had over the years. Um, they've got pictures um, of this thing that that we they didn't tell us we they had when you know when we were filming. Um, just tons of stories. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of other stories. Like I can share one with you. Um, I think one of us was asking him about Howie Caton about if, you know the most recent activity and stuff. And actually, because he he said that you know it's starting to get dark, guys. We should probably hurry up and go in. And he he explained that by saying that they have a rule where you you can go in during the day into the woods and come out at night, but you're not allowed uh, in air quotes there allowed to go in at night um, because apparently these things are nocturnal and and they they get extremely upset if you come into into their into their woods, I guess, when they're when they're about doing their business. Um and he learned this because in two thousand three, so this isn't in the film, um, they were up there, they went in at night and they were just walking around along the trails and they had heard different different vocalizations and things. And he said that, you know, that was that they should have been taking that as a warning at that point. Um but something swung from the left side of the tree canopy grabbed him by his shirt and lifted him up off the ground, which actually ripped part you know, part of his shirt and then dropped the him hell? as it as it as it swung to the other side of the canopy. So swung, picked him up, dropped him and, and swung over and, and you know, kinda of ran off through the trees. Um and that was to them that was kind of a way of them going, Hey, get the hell out of here kind of thing. Um Find so, so that was, back to what you can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there was a ton of stories like that that they have. Um, you know, like I said, pictures and a ton of Interesting kind of paranormal events that happened there. Um, we had somebody was talking about, you know, that like Seth mentioned earlier, there was also a UFO incident that happened in close relation to the nerve incident, and um, so we were talking about that possible. And one of the cousins was talking about, you know, there's every time that these the activity starts, they hear hum, a humming noise, and they can never pinpoint where it's coming from. So it'll it'll be coming from over here. They'll walk towards that noise, and all of a sudden it seems like it's coming from over there. And it always seems to happen whenever, you know, they see something or they hear something. So they didn't know if, you know, they said that might be related in that way. Um, but, yeah, there's all kinds of stories and stuff like that. Yeah, no kidding. What about the witnesses that you interviewed? I mean, did you guys see emotion from them? I mean, any deviation uh, from their stories? Uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm really, when I interview people, I, I mean, I like to look them right in the eyes and, and really feel, and, and understand what they encountered or what they saw. I mean, did you guys see emotion, uh, passion? I mean, uh, any any? Uh, did you guys feel that you were just well, being told a tale, or or is there more to it? With with interviews in a documentary, it's a lot more difficult than what I'm used to because I I kind of cut my teeth on interviews in in a newspaper, which is like mm-hmm. talk. You know, I can talk all I want. I'm just trying to get that other person to open up so you can engage them in conversation. When you're doing a a movie, it's like you ask a question, then you have to let that person speak. And unless you're wanting to do nonstop post-editing where you're pulling your voice out and all this kind of stuff, it's impossible to really talk. So you just kind of sit there, and like you said, you stare, you look them in the eyes, and you let them know you're engaged by nodding and all that kind of stuff, and you let them talk. I can tell you, when I spoke with Howie... And Rebecca Caton, the first few times, um, they were a little more um, emotional. There was a, there was more emotion. And I think I think what happened is you put that camera on them, especially in in the case of Minerva. We had I think three different cameras on them, and things can change. And we learned. I think we learned from that because on Whitehall, we did have cameras set up, but I just feel like it was a much less intrusive kind of 
situation than we were managing on on Minerva. So with with Whitehall, man, you got Brian Gosselin out in the field where he had his sighting, which was a very intense kind of sighting if you've watched the movie, and which most of you probably haven't, obviously, since the movie isn't even out for another month. But um, uh, I have the sorry, <laughs> but I can't uh, so so with Brian, he got extremely emotional. In fact, I'd say next to John Winslow, who I mentioned earlier. Um, Brian and John are the two most emotional people I've ever spoken to on camera. And um, it's interesting because with Brian, you can see it's it's just 100% he is casting himself back to that event and putting himself back in, in that place, and he's remembering it. Um, yeah. And, and it, you know, he gets goosebumps, and, you know, he sh- he shakes. He gets a little bit of a shake. I think toward the end, he kind of teared up a little bit. Um and with John, it was different. I don't know if it's because I was still just trying to read John, but John shook nonstop, beginning to end for the interview, and I could never quite read why that was happening. Um, but he was he was as emotional or possibly more than than Brian was. So I do try to read body language, you know, just for my own curiosity, really, to to see what people are, you know, and and I'm the kind of person who thinks I can. Um, kind of read people. I, th- I think it's one of my gifts. I don't know if that's true. Probably not. Um, but I, I try to read them. And, you know, with Brian, I don't have any doubt that something happened to him in 1976. Um, I, I, I 100% believe something happened to him in that field that night. And it's the same thing with Howie Caton. Um, you know, anyone else that I've talked to, those are, those are two of the big witnesses, obviously. With Brian, it was so emotional. And I mean, you were there for it. It was pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, everyone, you know, to go back to talking about hiking on the property with the Catons, like I said, there yeah. was probably eight or nine of us, and there was young, younger cousins, older, all the way up to Howie, um, you know, male, female. They all were telling the different stories. They've all had experiences on the property. And it's just, it's just amazing because, you know, when you're hiking for three or four hours, you know, the group changes constantly. So you might be t- walking with these three guys at one point, and then you're walking with Howie by himself, and and you know there some of the stories are kind of overlapping, and none of them are conflicting each other. No one's saying a detail that's out of sync with everybody else. Um, but same kind of thing, you know. I mean, and there's a lot of these stories that are telling you these details that they they probably know. We can infer that we're gonna think they're that's kind of crazy. I mean, for example, um, you know, Howie's telling us about his brother, right? Uh, that gets they jump the thing. They think it's a homeless, like a hermit living up in the woods at first, and then they jump it, and it bites his brother, I think, on the shoulder, and all this stuff. And you, you know, you got to think when you're telling the story coming from his point of view, he's probably thinking, "Oh, these guys are going to think I'm crazy," but he just tells it to you straight. I mean, he's looking you right in the eye. <laughs> There's no uh, wavering. Um, same thing with, I mean, when you watch the, when you watch Whitehall, you'll hear uh, a man named Cliff Sparks. He tells about um, seeing the red eyes. This thing came out on the golf course that he owned. And uh, he sees it with red eyes, and he and he describes uh, it almost looked like he he says it looks like laser beams coming out of its eyes. And I mean, you you know, he said something like that, but you, his face is completely sincere. There's no, you know, um, and and also you know they listen to the cassette tapes and listen to listen to Paul Gosselin especially tell his his story. And there's no there's nothing um, you know that sounds falsified about their about what he's saying. You know, so yeah, it's it's hard to dis- disbelieve them. Yeah. I mean, uh, whatever you guys, you know, doing the Menorah Monster and, the, you know, the Beast of Whitehall, 
um, I mean, what have you guys taken away personally from from doing these? Because, you know, I, when I do an interview, I've never done a like I said a documentary. I couldn't even fathom that. But uh, I've done a lot of interviews uh, with witnesses and uh, at times multiple witnesses. What have you guys taken away from 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 both the Minerva uh, documentary and now the the Whitehall uh, incident? What have you guys personally taken away and learned, uh, you know, per, you know, personally? What, what, anything? Uh, you know what I'm saying? Well, I mean, for me, it's that everyone has a different kind of response uh, psychologically to their encounter. Um, you know, in the case of the the Caton family, it was a very kind of negative thing. But even though it was a negative thing in terms of how the town responded to them and how they were ridiculed they still kind of consider this creature a pet um in a way i mean they've almost adopted it as their own you know um and 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 it still influences their life today and with whitehall it was the fact that you know paul gosselin has this terrifying encounter in a field one night and he responds to it by going on on nature flights with a a, a famed uh, nature photographer and trying to track down where the creature could be and he almost becomes like i mean when you hear the story it almost reminds you of like the goonies or something he's out trying to track huh. down this monster with a guy you know down on the Pulteney river and they're like searching caves and stuff for it and i mean he he became mildly obsessed with it and paul said that it it Stuck with, it stayed with Paul, uh, not Paul said, but Brian said that it stuck with Paul until the day he died. He was, he was still scared of it. He was, he was fearful of it, but it had obviously impacted him in, in a major way and really aroused his curiosity to where he had to have answers about it. And Brian, I kind of see that same kind of thing in him. Um, but it just depends. You know, you talk to people as well who have no desire to speak to us on camera or off camera about their encounter because they don't even want to remember that it happened. Um, and when you have, I guess, I guess when you're having these interactions with these people, um, it makes you wonder, well, if, if this is how they're responding to it, if they don't even want to talk about it on camera, what, what on earth do they have to gain by even telling me it happened in the first place? You know, so exactly. as someone who, who, as someone who is a little skeptical, uh, like myself, it always just uh, raises more questions for me. It, it, you know, makes me think. Well, you know, there has to be something going on. I mean, this is why I stay into this subject. I don't, I don't believe everyone's crazy, and I don't believe people are just misidentifying bear. I do think there's something to it. I just don't know what that is. Um, right. But people, you know, what these encounters, the pe- the way these people kind of respond to their encounters is, is what I taken away from it is that everyone's different. Yeah, I'd say this, this along the same lines. Um, just the eyewitness testimony is, is, as far as kind of bolstering um, I, don't want to, I don't want to use the word belief or whatever, but you know, my, right. how I kind of think about these, these creatures and stuff. Like I said, I'm still skeptical, skeptical about the whole thing. Um, but it's, uh, it's just, it, like I said, you, you speak to these witnesses and it's, it's difficult to um, walk away just feeling completely indifferent about them, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, when you have, and you have multiple witnesses, and some of them, you know, um, you know, uh, trained observers like police officers, it really makes a hard case, uh, you know, that something <laughs> extraordinarily happened. You know, something extraordinary happened. 
and um, I've interviewed, uh, well, I've interviewed uh, police officers and multiple other witnesses that have credential backgrounds, you know, and it makes it a very compelling case for uh, some of their encounters. Now, with 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 the uh, Whitehall incident, you had uh, multiple witnesses over a span of a week, basically, and probably longer. Uh, we'll never know. But uh, we're not talking about just your average Joe. Uh, there was multiple witnesses and family members. I mean, that's extraordinary. I mean, really extraordinary. Yeah, you have 11 people at the scene that night, and Bill thinks Bill Brand thinks there were more people because he thinks there were pedestrians or passers-by who might have stopped up the road because of the flashing lights and that kind of thing. And I think he's probably right. I mean, Whitehall, Bear Road, even though it sits out of town and is kind of this this little uh, isolated stretch of road, it's also we, – we noticed a lot of traffic on it when we were there. I mean, there's cars coming and going even in the evening hours. Um, so I'm sure he's probably right. At, at some point, there were other people at the scene. And and the other thing I'm not sure of is how long that event lasted that night. Mm-hmm. Like if yeah. it was just a, a five-second event, you know, all the cops show up, the things wa- walks up this, the, the field and out of sight, or if it goes on for, you know, a long stretch of time. Um, there's there's definitely uh, there's so many people involved that night that that it's one of the most unique sighting reports I've ever heard. If not, it might be the most unique just because of how many people were involved and then how many of these law enforcement officials are involved. And it, you know when you get into when you get into that, you run into things like uh, Mr. Fox, which is not the man's name. He's mentioned in the in in Brian's encounter story. Um, yeah. He was the the highway patrol officer. That wasn't his real name. He he calls himself Mr. Fox because apparently now, or they call him Mr. Fox because he doesn't want his name on the record. He works for the FBI. So I mean, this is this is a a legitimate you know law officer who had this sighting who who is doing his best <laughs> to stay unconnected to the Bigfoot it's story. It's a smoking man. Yeah, exactly. Smoking <laughs> man from File X or X Files. It, it all yeah. it all circles back to Mulder and Scully, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's all yeah, connected. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it's truly intriguing. Um, you know, with the amount of witnesses involved, you know, with with your you know your new uh, documentary on on the Beast of Whitehall, it's truly amazing to me the amount of people involved, how it affected the community, and those that say they saw what they saw you know i mean uh, and it's 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 well documented and you guys have pulled some pieces um, extra pieces to the puzzle out into your documentary um that is that are they're very compelling you know it, a lot of people put their uh, one of the things do, with doing these documentaries that i find interesting uh, uh viewing them is that uh when when a certain person or people come out and you know and talk about it, it well, they really are putting their name on the line. They're, they're risking, you know, getting mocked, um, ridiculed, and whole the whole nine. But they still do it, and uh, you, you got to ask yourself, well, why? I mean, they're not going to make money off this. I mean, at the very least, in in a lot of ways, they'll be mocked or laughed at. You know, I mean, you, there's 50 minutes of fame, of course. But there's more to it. I mean, do you guys feel that way? 
Yeah, especially in the case of New York, because that 15 minutes of fame is going to come with about 50 years of ridicule right. um, for for what you're for what you're claiming to have seen. And, I mean, it 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 just really is a different kind of. Um, and I'm not. If you're from New York and you're listening to this, I'm not saying that everyone in New York is is this way. And really, you know, there could be sections of New York that I'm completely unaware of, where it's much more like it is in Ohio, where it's you know, even the people that people that don't believe in Bigfoot in Ohio still kind of dig on the subject. Like they kind of dig exactly. the fact that it's it's our thing here. You know, it's it's like our little thing. But up there, I mean, if you're, for the most part, if you're like, I saw a Bigfoot. Six people. If you say that within earshot of other people, someone that is in earshot will laugh or make a joke. I mean, I I had that happen. Um, while we were there, it's and, yeah. and you know I had I had a, a guy who's in law enforcement up in Whitehall, who was connected to someone that was involved in the A Bear case. Tell me, he would never tell us on record even his own opinions on the Bigfoot subject because of how bad the rig, ridicule factor is. And this guy isn't claiming to have had a sighting. He's just saying he wouldn't even talk to us about his opinions on it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that still happens to this day. It happened uh, 50 years ago. It's happening to this day where people get mocked and are very reluctant to come forward. But, you know, that's another aspect to these documentaries is is perseverance and having you guys uh, really say, hey, you know, we want to do um, you, you justice, you know, as a witness. And this is historical. It affected the community. It affected the town. It affected the surrounding areas, it's that important. And, uh, you know, I, like I said before, I learned so much from these documentaries, um, not just with, with the evidence provided, but with as a social aspect and how witnesses react. And I see it, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed or interviewed a witness and um, they don't want it public. Uh, you know, said, hey, I'm going to tell you what I saw or what I heard uh, what transpired, but uh, please do not put this on paper. Uh, don't put it out there. Uh, don't add my name. Um, and uh, with with rather large events, uh, you know that you know involve a community like uh, Minerva and Whitehall. Um, there's a lot at stake for a lot of people because they're they're vested in businesses and their town, and uh, like police officers, perfect example. You know they come out saying, "Well, I saw a Sasquatch." <laughs> wow, uh, that's that's really putting your neck on the line. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's um, I, it's a huge challenge, and and it, it, you're not offering these people much. Um, you know, basically, you're offering them, hey, we're gonna tell your story on camera, but it's probably gonna come at the cost of you know a lot of ridicule. So yes, um, yeah, that it, it is definitely. It's definitely a challenge, more so in certain geographical areas, which I guess is another thing that I learned while making these mm-hmm. that I never would have well thought said, of. Yeah. You know, just just because of the fact that I don't think it's as hard for me to talk to people here in Ohio, um, especially people connected with the Minerva case, and get them to come on camera. I just it, yeah. it, If I wanted to tonight, I could make five phone calls and have five people who claim to have Minerva monster sightings who would come let me interview them, you know, for for some sort of, you know, addition to Minerva monster like tomorrow if I wanted to. Whereas when we were in Whitehall, I called people for weeks leading up to the trip with no luck. I called people while we were there with no luck. We asked multiple people to their face. 
um, while we were there with no luck. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let me ask you, Seth and Brandon, I mean, what do you guys want people viewing your documentaries, what do you want them to take from them? I mean, what what is your goal? What do you want them to experience, uh, you know, uh, in simplicity? Um, I mean, as far as me personally, I I just want people, like Seth kind of mentioned earlier, it's I want people who, whether they're interested in the subject or not, to be able to take something from it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but for me, the, the stories are, are all about the people, you know, and I think Seth kind of shares that view. I mean, obviously yeah. we're talking about a creature here, and but whether the creature really exists or not, um, it's not that it's irrelevant, but... It's for us. It's really about the people, and like we talked, like we talked about before, the, the community, how it affects the community, how it affects these people, and um, so I, I, I'm, I guess my hope is that people can take from it um, the humanity side of, of this whole thing. I guess is what I'm, I guess what I, I'm terribly putting into words. Does that make sense? No, it, yeah, yeah, that's that's how I feel about it too. I mean, it's it really is about the people and. Um, also the community, I mean, I grew up in a small town, so I, I love small towns and, um, appreciate how people interact with each other in a small town. I mean, despite the fact there is this ridicule factor associated with these cases, there's also, I mean, small towns, there's a line in, in Whitehall about how the town is carried on the back of its people. And I say that because Whitehall is suffering right now economically and, you know, it's still surviving because of the people that live there and want to live there, and 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 because of that, you know, the, the town's still going. And um, yeah, so I I take that away from it too. Is is uh, there's a huge cultural impact from these stories on the small community, and these these little towns have a lot to offer. That's why we do things, you know, these events that we do. We're doing a Whitehall premiere in Whitehall. Um, at the armory, actually, that they used on Finding Bigfoot for the town hall. We're going to premiere White, uh, Beast of Whitehall in Whitehall on April 2nd. And we're going to, you know, probably do something with the uh, Parks and Rec Department where they, you know, we can split the proceeds or they take all the proceeds or something like that. And that's what we did with Minerva, too. We showed Minerva uh, Monster in Minerva on uh, last June and we showed the movie for free solely to help out the town and the coolest thing about that event is we had six people that came out and volunteered to join the historical society which for a small town like Minerva is a big deal you know because historical societies are hard to get people to join because there isn't much to offer but we because of the event and so many people coming from out of town it it really helps the town out so we want to spotlight that these little communities are pretty awesome too yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Uh, and um, as a suggestion or an idea, I mean, have you guys, uh, or maybe you guys already thought about this, have you guys done, uh, I mean, you're talking about maybe getting out of some of the Bigfoot stuff and into other cryptids out there. Have you guys launched uh, any endeavor into reaching out to the general public for ideas for future um, documentaries on different cryptids? It's something we need to do. And, and as soon as we get past filming on Boggy Creek, I'm probably going to do that because we have had some stories pop up from, uh, you know, small town monsters fans on the Facebook page that I'd never heard of. And I'm really drawn to that, like stories that people have never even heard of outside of those communities. So that's definitely an awesome idea. Yeah. um, I don't know if you guys, I don't know if I should 
mention this. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's a big deal, but we've talked about also, you know, the name Small Town Monsters kind of not just being um, relegated to cryptids and stuff like that as well. Maybe maybe even if we just did one one movie about um, maybe a serial killer, because um, you know they, these people are monsters in their own little town. But maybe you know Seth, how he put it was like some of these some of these serial killers gain like a near mythic status, you know, because they especially some of them who are never caught that kind of stuff. They gain on them this this monster kind of legend type of thing. And I got the original idea. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of um, Spring Hill Jack. From, Zodiac killer. Uh, no, not the Zodiac. Spring Hill Jack. He was a. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Weed. Sorry, I was. No, no. Something there. Just, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, he was this weird kind of manifestation in, in London, and I think the 1800s. Um, but anyways, I came across the story, and I thought that was fascinating. I was like, man, that'd be crazy if we did a, you know, movie on on that case. Obviously, that's way far, way too much in the in the past, and it's over in London and all that stuff. But it gave me the idea, and then making a murder documentary series came out recently. I don't know if you guys saw that. Um, yeah. But that that was really fascinating series, and I was like, wow, that'd be amazing for us to kind of even if we just did one movie on something like that, it might be interesting. But yeah, there's so many different things that we could go into. Yeah, yeah, we did absolutely. That. We actually just asked, went down that path not too long ago because we have uh, a friend of ours here that uh, is known as an expert for the Zodiac Killer. So, um, oh, awesome! That, that is that is definitely a a human monster. So, yeah, right. So it's interesting. One of the things that's interesting is you guys talked about. Um, I mean, this. The the white the beast from Whitehall is like from the seventies, but while you were filming, they were talking about uh, having still having uh, activity to this day. So that's it, it didn't just end in nineteen seventy or in right. the seventies. Same same situation with Minerva too. Both of them are ongoing situation. And Boggy Creek. And Boggy Creek definitely. Hmm. But we're we're getting close, running up against the clock. I I want to thank both uh, of our guests today, Seth Breedlove and and Brandon, for uh, joining us today. Uh, great show. I think people are really going to enjoy hearing about it. Quickly, uh, if somebody is interested in in purchasing uh, Boggy Creek is the I'm not Boggy Creek, but Minerva Monster is the the film that's currently available. Where can they go to do that? shop.smalltownmonsters.com and uh, you can pre-order Whitehall on there as well. And then it's streaming on Vimeo. So if you go on Vimeo.com and, and search for Minerva, you'll find it on there as well. And then the Kickstarter for Boggy Creek goes on for another seven days. And and uh, the if you want to see more of uh, Small Town Monster movies or films, uh, get on there and support them financially. I, it isn't a cheap endeavor, I'm sure. I mean, I know that you're, you guys are doing it uh, economically, but uh, it still costs money to put these things together, I'm sure. Um, and yeah. again, I'd like to thank both of you gentlemen for, for joining us here this evening on Monster X. Yeah, thanks for having us on. This was, this was awesome. I love talking to you guys. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, it was... <laughs> It went by way too fast, um, and uh, appreciate you guys. Again, um, uh, you can go to uh, smalltownmonsters.com, and and uh, they not only have the, the Minerva 
monster movie on there. Um, you can pre-order The Beast of Whitehall. And not only that, you can get all kinds of uh, a gear that has, uh, you know, sweatshirts and hats and all that is available on their website. Um, and I'm sure that helps uh, support future endeavors. So, uh, again, great show with you guys tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, coming up uh, for Monster X, we have uh, uh, a new show that, that is coming up called Animal Extent. Um, mark your calendars for March 2nd, 6, 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Our own uh, Monster, Monster X Mike, or Mike Richburg, as you might know him, uh, is uh, helping us. We're expanding our brand a little bit, and uh, our first show uh, from Animal Extent, it's going to be uh, other encrypted besides uh, Bigfoot. And uh, our first show will feature Scott Martis, and will be on the topic of relic plesiosaurs. So, uh, though that is uh, again, it's March second, um, Animal Extent, and uh, that is uh, our first episode of of that uh, branch of Monster X. Um, we're uh, we'll shortly be coming up with a a. Uh, membership opportunity, a subscription where uh, we have several uh, ideas for, for new content. If uh, you like Monster X, you'll love Animal Extent. Um, we're going to do some stuff uh, that is uh, witnesses, and then we're also going to do a show um, from when we're out uh, doing field research. So um, something uh, to look forward to from us here at Monster X. I did want to also take a second and uh, uh, thank Julie Wrench for lining up our guest today, um, Seth Breedlove and uh, and Brandon Dalo, excuse me. Um, and uh, thanks for uh, um, sucking it up today. I know Shane is feeling his best. He's been a little under the weather, uh, but that's why we call him Shane Hardcore Corson. Uh, and he made it in today. So uh, thanks again, everybody, for listening to uh, us on Sundays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, Monster X Radio will be back next Sunday with uh, Henry May, host of Crypto Corner. And uh, if you are in the chat room on Monster X Radio, you know that that, uh, Henry is generally in there on Sundays. So Really appreciate everybody uh, listening, and uh, you can check us out on Facebook. Uh, we have a Monster X group, and we have a Monster X public page. Again, and uh, thanks to our guests with uh, Small Town Monsters. I highly recommend that you uh, go out and check out uh, Minerva Monster and the upcoming Beast of Whitehall. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to watch Beast of Whitehall today and thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks, everybody, for joining us. We will be back next week at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on Monster X Radio. We're out of here. we got to go chase some monsters. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.